But let's turn our hearts to God's word, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and I want to read our text for us this morning. And hopefully we'll close out this chapter, maybe. We'll see. But we're looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Uh, Love in action. Last week we looked at love in action in the church. And... um, We looked at basically the call to love that he gave us. He says, love one another with brotherly affection and um, that we're to be devoted to that. It's not something that we are to um, overlook as believers. And so we just want to pray this morning that God would bring to our remembrance um, his word as we looked at it last week, we looked at some of the characteristics of love. And um, in Romans 12, 3, all, all the way down, basically, it tells us that um, we should outdo one another. We shouldn't be slothful in zeal. We should be fervent in spirit, serve one another, uh, rejoice in the hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. And so this week, our text is Romans 12, verses, beginning in verse 14. And he writes there, Blessed, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If there's anything we need to understand today in America, it's this passage. I mean, you you just see the wheels coming off the cart in so many different ways in our society. Um, there's so much hatred out there. And somebody asked me this last week, well, what's your take on all this stuff and Charlotteville and all this? I said, it boils down to basically a couple verses. First of all, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Another verse says that the heart is wicked deceitfully so and you know what we see in our society today is just a display of sin there's no reason for it there's no cause for it it gives people the opportunity to go out in society and behave in a way that is irresponsible and hateful and it's Bottom line, it's because of sin. And so when we come to this passage, and it talks about blessing those who persecute you, um, that verse in Paul's day had a whole different meaning than it does for us today. I would probably venture that probably most of us here have not been persecuted in the sense that Paul was persecuted. I mean, we think that if somebody comments on our Bible that we left on our desk at work. Oh, I got persecuted today. (laughs) Beloved, that's not persecution. (laughs) You know, that's just the reality of being a a Christian in a world that's fallen. Um, John Piper, in one of his books, article, he wrote uh, an account of Graham Staines and his two sons. Graham Staines was a, uh, a missionary... And 
It says, in January 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip 10 and Timothy 6, were mobbed by radical Hindus. This is in India. Trapped inside their vehicle and burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered clinging to each other. Graham Staines had spent 34 years serving the people of India. In the name of Jesus. He was the director of the leprosy mission in Baraparada. And he left behind his widow Gladys and his daughter Esther. When they interviewed Esther, the news, they asked for a response. And her response was in every paper in India. And her response said this, which gave total glory to Christ, by the way. She said just a few days after the martyrdom of her husband and sons, she said this, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter. Neither am I even angry. But I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. After her husband's martyrdom, everybody thought that she would go back <clears throat> to Australia. But she didn't. She said, God has called us to India, and she is not going to leave. She said, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. Those of you who are younger, listen to this response by their daughter. Their daughter Esther, after the murder of her father, said this. She said, I think she was 13. She said, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. That's from a teenager. Uh, you know, all over the world today, beloved, there's Christians who are being persecuted because of their stance for Christ. All over the world in different nations. And we live in a very hostile world to the things of God. I mean, it was in 1963, the Supreme Court said that it was okay to kill the baby in the womb of a mother. Our country has since affirmed same-sex marriage. Even though the people started right here in California, voted in Proposition 208. And it was overturned by a court, not by the people. And now some 36, well, more than that, states affirm same-sex marriage. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world today that's filled with anarchy. I was in San Francisco yesterday. Probably shouldn't have been there. It was crazy. It was nuts. Even in Daly City, I saw kind of a caravan of these guys with masks on and flags and clubs and all kinds of stuff. Man, I'm getting out of here. Just anarchists just want to disrupt and cause chaos. There's nothing wrong with people going out and displaying free speech, whatever it is. But when you're disruptive, you're causing riots and all kinds of things, that's, that's no place for believers to be. But it's just anarchists that are taking part in these kind of things. And we have to remember that Romans 12, verses 14 to 21 deals strictly with our personal relationships. It's dealing with personal relationships. It's not dealing with um, making laws to punish evildoers. That's next chapter, Romans 13. It talks about government and how they're to intervene when things get out of control. But see, remember, these are, these are personal relationships we're talking about here. 
So, you know, going out and, you know, petitioning the Congress to pass another law that they won't enforce anyway. I mean, it's, it's just, it's all for naught. All right. But see here, he says, you know what, personally within the church, you have relationships. And sometimes those relationships um, can cause problems. And so he wants us to understand very clearly that even within the church and even those without the church, on a personal level, not on a corporate level, but on a personal level, you may face some persecution. And so the first thing I want to look at this morning is how do we deal with these things? Four ways to put our love in action in a real world. The first thing is be a blessing. Be a blessing. That's what he says in verse 14. Look at it. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. That goes against every fiber of my being. It just does. You know, I'm not one to back down from a confrontation. I don't like confrontation. But there's something within me that wants to prove my side of the confrontation. So, at times, I've been willing to get in somebody's face if I have to. Um, The key is trying to do that in an honorable way, which is difficult at times. But it says here that we are to be a blessing. Bless those that persecute you. I just want to look at some, some, some verses that kind of talk about the reality of persecution in Paul's day and even in our day today. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would what? Love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Um, John 7, 5, Jesus challenges, is being challenged by his brothers to perform miracles to prove that he has these supernatural powers. And John 7, 5 says, even his brothers were not believing in him. This is his own family. Or John 7, 7, it says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. See, they were part of the world system who did not believe in Jesus. So they wouldn't be hated by the world. And even in 1 John, we just got through 1 John and 2 John. We're starting 3 John, if you're interested, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 John writes, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And as we say so many times, that word, that word if there can actually also be translated since. <laughs> the world hates Christians, first of all, because we're not of this world. The Bible says that. The values of this world are, are totally opposite. They're antithetical to God's values. Everything we see around us every day does not line up to what honors and glorifies God. They do not think like God. They do not act in accordance with God's law. And you know what? To be honest, they don't have any desire to. (laughs) They don't care. So we're not of this world. That's the first problem. The second problem is that we're chosen, the Bible says, we read that verse in John, out of this world. God chose us for salvation out of this world. That's the doctrine of election. Some people have a problem with the doctrine of election. It's probably one of the most pride-crushing doctrines there is. Because basically the doctrine of election says that before the foundation of the world, I was going to... I chose you to put my love on you. God says, I'm going to save you before you were ever even born. You mean I'm not saved because I chose God? No, you're not. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says before we could ever love him, he loved us first. And so he chose us out of the world. It sounds almost kind of arrogant to people when you say that. 
I'm chosen, you're not. Well, the problem with that statement is you don't know who's chosen and who isn't. So we have to be careful of labeling people as such. I think it was Spurgeon who said the chosen don't have a a, a yellow stripe down their back or a big E on their forehead. Elect. You know, we don't know who's chosen, who's not. That's why the Bible says, Jesus said, go out into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. And in doing so, when we're obedient to that, we're going to run across some people who are chosen. And you know what? God is going to give them the grace to respond gloriously to the gospel and they're going to be saved. Not because of us, but because of God. And then the third thing is we're identifying with Jesus when we call ourselves Christians. And Jesus himself, in the scriptures we just read, he says, I came to judge the world. The deeds of the world. See, the world hates Jesus because he calls them them out on their sin. That's why the name Jesus is such a controversial name today. I was reading somewhere where there was a, uh, several years ago, two years ago, something like there at Duke University, they passed a, a rule that they would approve to broadcast the Muslim call to prayer from the bell tower of the chapel on campus. It was in 2014 or 2015. Now, the problem was, is there were Christian groups that tried to have prayer meetings. Oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, separate church, all this stuff. But then, you know, these folks come along. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll play this call to prayer from our own chapel bell tower. And there was a protest led by Franklin Graham. And he says, as Christianity is being excluded from the public square and followers of Islam are raping, butchering, and beheading Christians, Jews, and anyone else who doesn't submit to their Sharia Islamic law, Duke is promoting this in the name of religious pluralism. They did back away from that, by the way. But when you stop and you think of this, it's kind of a crazy world we live in. It's upside down almost. And so here he says, you know what? There's going to be the reality, the presence of persecution. If you're standing up for Christ, you're going to get some backlash. But secondly here, I want to look at what should our reaction be when the backlash happens? Our reaction is clear. It says there in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That word bless, we get the word eulogy from. You know, when you have a funeral, you usually have a eulogy. Someone stands up and speaks well of the person who just passed away. And that's what it means. It means to speak well of. A self-contained beneficial force which one could transmit to another is another definition. It is a word invested with power and an action ratifying it. It's not merely just an external word. It's something that implies action. You couldn't give a eulogy without actually saying something well about the person. The word itself is used 419 times in the Old Testament, 116 times in the New Testament. So it's a pretty important word to understand. And so Paul here, by blessing, he means You know what? You're genuinely praying for. You're genuinely seeking the well-being of those who are persecuting you. Now, I don't know about you, but that goes against everything that I want to do to somebody who's persecuting me. Or speaking ill about me. It means asking God to save the one who has mistreated us. And really, that's, you could say that's the, the greatest blessing of all. Right? And now when he says cursing here, he doesn't mean swearing at him. That's not what he's talking about. However, that's wrong as well. But he says, don't call down a curse from God on him. Sometimes I hear believers say such things. Oh, you know, they're going to hell anyway. And they almost say it with kind of a little happy tone in their voice about unbelievers 
who may not be living up to their standard of living. See, we should not wish that the persecutor rot in hell for what he did. See, it's not enough just to refrain from retaliating on someone who persecutes you or getting rid of our desire for vengeance. Rather, we're to ask God to bless these people. I mean, doesn't that go against everything that you want to do to somebody who's persecuting you? As we have opportunity, we are to seek ways of helping the one who wrongs us. And, And this is in the church, outside of the church. We can't even get this right in the church. You know, someone offends, oh, I'm offended, I got rights. You know, we get in their face about that. We don't do what the Bible says, extend grace. As we have opportunity, we are to seek ways of helping the one who wronged us. We are not to speak evil about them or get happy or delightful in thinking of evil things that could happen to them. The Bible says here, Paul says, we should bless them. That's not a natural, nor is it an easy thing to do. That's why God has given us his Holy Spirit. Amen? Because it's Christ who does this through us. Well, when you think of blessing in the, in the, the Bible, there's different kinds of blessing. There's physical blessing. You see the verses there. You can look those up. The, the, the blessing Jacob stole from Esau in, G- in Genesis 27 involved the double portion, you remember the story, of the father's uh, wealth and his property. And being the, the patriarch of the family when the father died, that's what he was entitled to, and he stole that. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 3 and 4, it's seen in tangible ways. It says this, Blessed you shall be in the city, blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and produce of your ground, and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast and the increase of your herd and the, the young of your flock. So there were very tangible blessings that came along with these, these kind of physical blessings. In Deuteronomy 28, 12, he says, Blessed all the work of your hand, which includes harvests and peace, stature around the nations. But there was also a, a physical blessing, or a, a priestly blessing, a priestly blessing. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 to 26, it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. We've all heard this. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you what? Peace. God's blessing brings peace. And then there's also an ultimate expression of blessing. In, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And I will bless those who bless you, speaking of Israel, and, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. That's repeated in Genesis 18 and Genesis 28. That's the ultimate blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, which speaks of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. So Paul is reflecting on probably the words of Christ when he talked about this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, and what? Pray for those who persecute you. If anybody knew anything about persecution, it was Jesus. Or in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28, Jesus put it this way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. A couple verses later, in verses 35 and 36, he says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Wow. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 11 to 12, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets you were, uh, who were before you. And so Jesus spoke to persecution quite a bit. 
Paul, even in his own ministry, he was persecuted. He spoke of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. He says, when we're viled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuse of all things. That's what people thought of him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, Peter gives us... The example of Jesus in this way, he says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Never thought of suffering and persecution as being part of our Christian heritage as far as our calling goes, but it is. He says, because Christ also suffered for you. Look at this, leaving you what? An example. In other words, you know, you don't give somebody an example just for the reason of giving them an example. You know, if you're teaching a child and they're learning how to write, you take a piece of paper and you write down some letters. And then you say, here, here's what it looks like. Why? You don't want them just to crumble it up and throw it out. You want them to take that piece of paper and go, oh, okay, and they want them to copy it. You want them to use it as an example. Christ was our example, leading you example so that you might follow in his steps. Where do those steps lead? They lead to the cross. They lead to persecution. They lead to suffering. They don't lead to prosperity and health and wealth, as some would have you believe. Verse 22 in that text, he says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He also says in 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. See, we are not to curse those that persecute us. In Turkey, they they, they call that, they they have this little kind of uh, little eye thing that you see all over the place. And it's called the evil eye. And they think superstitiously that somehow you can curse other people with this thing. It's kind of crazy. And what he's saying here is, you know what? You don't, don't repay evil for evil. And this shows us in the New Testament, everything the New Testament has said so far runs contrary to the natural reaction we will have when someone mistreats us. Your natural reaction is not to bless someone who is mistreating you. We are to respond not only by not retaliating, it says, but positively by blessing those who persecute us. We're to bless those who persecute us. What do you do? You smile. You initiate a conversation. You ask questions. Seek some form of common ground. What's that do? It overcomes that hatred, that effect that the enemy wants to bring out in people. And it's usually the best thing for the person who's doing the persecuting, because maybe it might bring him to salvation or her to salvation, but it's also best for us because it removes that corrosive bitterness. You know, dialogue always helps a situation. And so it's good to reach out to those who may disagree and, and to speak to them in a gracious way. And the reason that we should seek to respond to persecution by blessing our persecutor is that we are seeking basically to reflect who? We're trying to reflect the character, the nature, the being of Christ upon this world. We want God to be glorified as we reflect his grace and his love to sinners. This isn't an easy thing to do, by the way. 
You know, I think sometimes you can respond in a God-honoring way when you're put in a, in a situation where maybe there's some, you know, back and forth or whatever. Is to remember. Just simply remember when you're dealing with somebody, especially who's outside of Christ, and they're just being an idiot, you know, or a jerk or whatever you want to, you know, their behavior is just not helpful. Just remember that, you know what? God was gracious to me when I was just like that. You know? Um, That he continues, even now I'm a Christian, and I still sin. He continues to be gracious to me. As a child of God. And so, you know what? I should be gracious to those who are under Satan's command, Satan's domain of darkness, those who are still enslaved to sin. And by blessing those who persecute me, it may be that odd behavior because they're not expecting a blessing. You know, I've experienced this on the freeway. I've experienced it driving. I've been on both sides of this thing. I've been on... Sides where I've just been so filled with frustration while driving. I just want to run other, run everybody, just go, go crazy in the car. You know, I mean, you're yelling, you're screaming, you're doing all this stuff. The windows are up so nobody really knows what you're saying. But, you know, it's just crazy sometimes. It's, it's nuts out there on the freeways. But you know what? I've also been on the side where somebody, you know, maybe inadvertently cut somebody off and they're flipping you off. They're going nuts and whatever. And, you know, you just kind of maybe reach your hand out to them. Sorry, you know. And usually they'll calm down. They'll kind of move on. But, you know, when you when you stir the fire, stir the pot, you don't know what's going to happen out there today. So I recommend you don't do that. Um, There was a, a story many years ago. It was written in Christianity Today. Um, the author was Josephine Ligon. And um, it, this, this story actually happened to her uh, as a young girl. She wrote, There was a family named Parsons in her hometown that preached and practiced forgiveness. On one occasion, Josephine, the author of this story, and some of her third grade friends put a handful of pencil shavings into the Parson Girls sandwich just to be mean, just to make her mad. But she didn't get mad. Instead, the next day, without any sign of repentance from her persecutors, the Parsons Girl brought everyone in the class a large, beautiful, hand-decorated cookie that said, Jesus loves you. With her mother's help, that little girl blessed her persecutors. And those third graders remembered that day for the rest of their lives. See, we need to bless these people. And we can only do it if God gives us the grace to do that. Secondly, we need to be compassionate. Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You might say, well, that sounds real easy. But you know what? This even goes against our very nature. That means, that, you know, in your office complex, you know, you got the big promotion coming and boy, everybody's looking to try to get it. There's been several people who've been interviewed in the office. And guess what? Henry gets it and you don't. And you thought you were more qualified than Henry. What's your attitude going to be? Is it going to be rejoice with those who rejoice? Or is it going to be, ah, you know what? That's not fair. How dare they take that promotion and give it to this guy? It's one of the most difficult things to do is to be happy when someone else succeeds. Especially if it's an area of your own professionalism. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul says this, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, guess what? All the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members 
rejoices with it. That's the key. See, the context of what we're reading here is difficult relationships, both Christians and non-Christians. Now, it's not talking about rejoicing over sin, but it refers to this genuine good that happens to someone that maybe you know, to rejoice with them. Um, And rejoicing with with someone who rejoices is difficult because we're all prone to what? Jealousy. Let's just be honest. If a friend receives a promotion, we offer congratulations. But inside we're going, "Ah, I should have, it should have been me. (laughs) See, rejoice means to take pleasure in. To actually maybe take them a gift. Whether it's words or even something physical. To rejoice with them in their success. But they also says weep with those who weep. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that, that forge friendships. But there's probably nothing more than common sorrow. You see it all over the place. I remember back in the, I think it was the 80s. When that jet, that jumbo jet took off from JFK, it was going to France. And we had, from our high school, I think we had 40, the whole French club was on this thing. I think it was going to France. And it went down. And they all, everybody died. And I remember thinking, wow, our whole town is, is joined at the hip because of this horrible tragedy. Where there was extreme grief and sorrow. But you know what? To this day, they have a memorial. and People come out of the woodwork to come to this memorial because why? Their commonality is the sorrow that was experienced even that many years ago. Tears have a way somehow of bringing people together. I've seen it firsthand. And Christians have a responsibility to grieve with those who grieve. In Nehemiah chapter 1, when Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins... He said he wept and mourned for days. Or in Job chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, when Job lost all his children, his business, his wealth, the affection of his wife, the only thing he had left, and her words were, curse God and die. I mean, (laughs) great, thanks. His three friends came to him. And it tells us there in verses Job 2, 12 to 13. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and threw dust on their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground for him for seven, with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that this, his pain was very great. There was once a little girl who lost a uh, friend, young friend, in death. And one day she told her parents that she had gone to comfort the grieving mother. She thought, you know, I'm going to go see my best friend's mother because I know that she just lost her daughter. And her parents asked her, well, what did you say? And the little girl said, nothing. I just climbed up on her lap and cried with her. See, that's sometimes what we need to do. There's a story of Joseph Bailey and his wife who lost three of their seven children in death. And he wrote this, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me about God's dealings, of why it happened. Of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true. But I was so unmoved. Except to wish that he would go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat there. For an hour or more. Listened. When I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply and left. He writes, I was moved. I was comforted. I actually hated to see him go. 
See, the mercy of God calls upon us as believers, having experienced that mercy, to sympathize with others. With their joys and with their sorrows. Unfortunately, we live in a society that very few people understand how to grieve with a friend. I mean, don't ignore it. Don't offer platitudes. Here are some guidelines. First of all, just go and be with them. That means more than any words you're going to say. Just be by their side. You don't have to be profound or to find some reason to do this, to to say you love them. And the third thing is do something helpful. We've all done this. I've done this. I know I've done this. Hey, if you need anything, just give me a call. They're not going to call. See, our responsibility is to find something they need done and do it. Don't even ask them. Because they're in a state of grief. I read this illustration of a custom they have in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. People entered at the base of the southern wall and they ascended to the stairs to the temple court. Everyone exited through another gate along the same wall when they were done with their worship, all except for one group, those who were grieving and sorrowful. They were required to enter through the exit so people could see the sadness on their faces and share their grief. So when people are blessed, don't be jealous. Send them some flowers. Send them some candy. Say, hey, congratulations. Send them a card. And look for reasons to weep with those who are weeping. And then thirdly here, be humble. Be humble. Look at what he says in Romans 12, 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. First thing here is practice equality. Be of the same mind toward one another. I mean, God doesn't circumvent his desire here and his design for leadership, for government. See, this is referring to human relationships. I mean, obviously in government you have a hierarchy. Okay, even in the church you have order. But this is referring to human relationships. He says, be of the same mind one toward another. It really tells us that there should be that sense of equality within the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, Paul says this, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Or Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It doesn't mean you shouldn't look out for your own personal interests, but don't only do that. There's no favoritism. There should be no class distinctions within the church. James speaks to this when he in verses chapter 2 verses 2 to 4, he says, "For if a man comes into your church into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, sit here in a good place, right next to the the air conditioner. And you say to the poor man, hey, you know, you sit out there in the lobby, stand over there, sit down at my footstool, James says. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Question mark. Implication. Yes, you have. (laughs) That has no place in the church. None. It's a story of Queen Zita von Hasburg. She died in 1989 at the age of 96. And she was brought to the door, her body was brought to the door of the Capuchin Church in Vienna. 
And the procession stopped at the front door of the church. And this long tradition that they do was acted out. And here's what the tradition did. A member of the funeral party knocked on the closed door of the church. And a voice within asked, who goes there? And the man answered, Queen of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Sylvania, Galatia, Queen of Jerusalem, Grand Duchess of Tuscany, and Krakow. And the voice came back from the other side of the door, I do not know her. Second knock. Who goes there? Zita, Empress of Austria and Queen of Hungary. The voice would come back, I do not know her. Third knock. Who goes there? And the answer was this. Zita, a sinning mortal. Come in. And the doors opened. See, we need to be reminded that when we stand before Christ, all the titles we have in this world, all the money, all the things that we work for so diligently, it's not going to matter. Are we willing to admit we're a sinning mortal in need of a Savior? Second thing here, he says, do not be haughty. Do not be haughty in mind, or high thinking is the idea. Um, I remember in some Baptist churches that I was a youth pastor in, up on the stage, the platform, they would have these big chairs. And every Sunday before the service, you'd kind of have a procession. The pastor, you'd follow the pastor up. And the choir, they'd fill up the choir loft and the pastor would come out. He'd sit in his chair. I'd sit in my chair. The music director had a chair. Everybody had a chair. And we'd sit up there and we'd look down at all the lowly people who weren't on the platform. I mean, that wasn't in our hearts, but that's what it looked like to me. I thank God that we don't have any chairs up here. I thank God that we have people who are ministering the word of God that come out of the congregation and walk up here behind this pulpit. We should not be haughty. It doesn't mean that we're to avoid... Association with rich people or people of stature. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should also not refuse association with someone who may be in society a little lower than us. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. He says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Leon Morris says this about this verse. He says, the person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. (laughs) I like that. The person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. Jay Leno was once asked what the secret was to his long marriage. He said this. He says, if you don't fool around, it's not that hard. I think the key to life is low self-esteem. Believing you're not the smartest or the most handsome person in the room. Then he said this, and I like this. All the people who have high esteem are either criminals or actors. (laughs) thought that was funny we're not to be haughty we're not to be prideful but thirdly we're to associate with the lowly we're to associate with the lowly Um, in Matthew chapter 23 verses 5 to 7 to the Pharisees he was speaking and he says do all the they do all their deeds to be noticed by men For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. See, a sure sign of false religion is when you simply look at the leaders who are leading that. Are they genuine? Or are they hypocritical? If they're not genuine, usually they have a certain desire for earthly prestige. They have a certain desire to be noticed by men. 
And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. See, there's no place in Christianity for some hierarchy. We have to strike this from our minds. I mean, you know, we have to get, get, we're all in this together. We're all sinners saved by God's grace. Yes, God has gifted certain of us to do certain things, and he's gifted others to do other things. But as we looked several weeks ago, when we looked at the gifts, we're not to distinguish even between those gifts. Because they're all done for the glory of God. And then the fourth thing here, he says, don't be wise in your own estimation. Literally, don't get a big head. I can't tell you how many times that I've studied for Sunday and kind of excited about it, thinking, man, this is going to be cool. This is going to be great. God, all the stuff i got to share. And I'll meet some people at the door. Like, you, you feeling all right, Pastor, today? Yeah, I just kind of seem a little off. You know? <laughs> what? What? And then there's other days I get up here and I don't even remember what I said. Wow, that was a great message. It's like, what part? Please tell me. God has a way of keeping us humble. See, this isn't about us. It's not about, it's, it's about the glory of Christ. It's about communicating his word. In John 13, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you ought to also uh, do as I did to you. You know, to wash somebody's feet is an act of humility. Uh, it's is gross to think about it, right? I mean, I just... No, I'm not going to go there. And, you know, to be honest, he's not... I mean, he's, he's talking about washing people's feet, literally here. But, I mean, that was the culture. That was the day they lived in. You know, that doesn't mean that we should all be washing everybody else's feet today. But it, it deals more with a heart attitude. You know, what would you be willing to do for somebody? Maybe it's not wash their feet. You know, maybe it's other things that could be just as hideous. You know, who knows? You know, and, and so you have to stop and you have to think, or I don't know if hideous is a good word, but whatever. Um, See, it comes down to humility. <laughs> humility. And, and that, that should be the sum of our relationships with everyone. There's a guy by the name of Charles Evan Hughes. He was a very um, illustrious politician. He served as New York governor from 1907 to 1910. He was a Supreme Court justice from 1910 to 1916. He's a Republican presidential candidate in 1916. He was a Secretary of State from 1921 to 1925. He was the World Court Judge from 1928 to 1930. He finished his career as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from 1930 to 1941. And when he was appointed Chief Justice, he moved to Washington, D.C. And he became a member of a Baptist church there. And in that Baptist church, it was customary when the new members joined the church that they came and they they stood on the far right hand side others came and stood on the far left hand side well on that same day that this chief justice joined the church there was this lowly Chinese laundryman Named Ah Singh. Wasn't dressed properly for church. Looked like maybe it was a couple days before he'd had a bath. And everybody was joined up here on the left side of the church. These new members. And Ah Singh came up and he stood over here. By himself. And then they mentioned Chief Justice Hughes. And he got up. And guess where he stood. He stood right next to Hussein. See, we have to remember that Jesus stood right next to us. 
you got to ask the question, who are you standing next to? Well, the last thing here is be good, and we're going to rapid fire go through this. He says, not just be a blessing or be compassionate, be humble, but be good. And this is what he covers here in the last couple verses here, verse 17 to 21. In verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Jesus taught, taught this same principle. It's speaking of tolerance. There's a principle called lex talionis. It's taken out of Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus 24. The idea Jesus related this way in Matthew 5 verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This law was given to govern laws being too lenient or too strict. It gave some leeway. You don't cut off a guy's hand for stealing, nor do you merely slap his wrist. Jesus' response in verse 39 of Matthew 5, he says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And he's not denying this principle, he's just saying that you don't have to apply it to personal relationships. That was a, a place for government authority. That's what that was speaking of. It wasn't speaking of, oh, you know what, you did this to me, I'm going to get you back. On a personal level. It was talking more on a national level. And so Jesus applied this principle. He applied it to one's dignity in verse 39 of Matthew 5, he applied it to lawsuits as far as gaining assets. In verse 40, he talked about infringements on one's liberty in verse 41, violations of property rights in verse 42 of Matthew 5. What was he doing? He was calling for a full surrender of our personal rights. And so the idea that we shouldn't be a little tolerant, we need... To be so. And then he also says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. It doesn't say this. Respect every person no matter what they think is right. It doesn't say that. What is right in the sight of all men. It speaks of common decency. See, this isn't making everything, you know, tolerant, everything... The same, it doesn't matter whether you believe this or you believe that. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, you know what? There are things that even the unsaved would acknowledge as being right and wrong. This is what a society is built on, our core principles. This word right, Plato describes it as sound thinking. In philosophy, you would call it truth. In character, you would say that's what is honorable. Here it speaks specifically about morality, that which is right. The point is, in doing what is right, Christians are to lead the way. We are to lead the way in pursuing truth. Lead the way in being honorable. Lead the way in knowing and doing what is right. And that's a common ground for all troublesome relationships. And then the Third thing here, peace. If it possible, so far as it depends on you, in other words, give it your best shot, be at peace with all men. Now, it's obviously we won't be at peace with all men because we just got done reading all the verses that Jesus said, the world will hate you. But as far as it depends on us, we should attempt this. And in verse 19, he says, never take your own revenge. But leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So on a personal level, it's not up to us to go out into society and rid the society of people who may not be living for God, whether they're abortionists or whatever, lifestyle, whatever. That's not our call. We're to reach them with the gospel, to reach them with the love of Christ. And see, when you get this wrong, you go down a road... That is filled with hatred. That's why you have these hate groups carrying crosses. 
and saying things in the name of religion that Christ would never condone. We have to remember that vengeance belongs to God. He will judge all evil. Nobody's getting away with anything, beloved. We just have to keep that in our mind, even when it looks like they're getting away with it. And we also have to remember, first of all, that vengeance belongs to God. And then secondly, that kindness is what moves the human heart. Kindness moves the heart, not vengeance. And that's why he says kindness will reap, will, will heap burning coals on his head. What's that mean? It will shame them. When someone is nasty, you be kind to them. They're the ones that are going to look shameful, not you. And then thirdly, stooping to vengeance lowers us to the level of evil. And we've all gone there. We've all done it. We've all blown it at times. We've all met hatred with hatred or met evil with evil. Booker Washington said this, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. I like that. I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. And the only way to win an enemy is to make him a friend. And we can do that through God's help. And the last thing here, good, do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, our goal as Christians is not to go out and club the enemy with the the gospel, beat them into submission with our zeal and our political action committees and self-righteous acts or whatever. There was a self-proclaimed atheist. She wrote a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Her name was Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a liberal. She was a lesbian. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse. And she wanted to do research work on the religious right. But to do that, she knew that she had to read the Bible. Because she wanted to know where they were coming from. And she launched her attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, uh, the patriarchy, in the form of an article in the, the local newspaper about promise keepers. Remember that group? Well, there was a lot of responses. A lot, she got a lot of flack for this. But there was one response that she couldn't categorize. She couldn't put it in a yes or no group. <laughs> and it came from Ken Smith. He was the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. She classified it as kind and inquiring letter where he urged her to explore some questions. First of all, how did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you were right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with her. He didn't mock her. Further discussion over the phone led to an invitation to dinner. Ken and his wife, Flo, did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. They invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat, but to listen to her and to learn and to dialogue. She writes, Ken and Flo had a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview. We didn't talk about, uh, we talked about our personal truth and about what made us tick. Ken and Flo didn't identify with me. They did not identify with me. She says, they listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. And because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his hand. See, we need to be real in this world we're living in as believers. Are your attitudes transformed by the the gospel of Christ? Are you blessing those who have wronged you? Are you sympathizing with others in their joys and their sorrows? 
Are you practicing humility through true Christian unity? Being quick to take on lowly jobs and befriend people maybe who are of no earthly status at all. And through not being impressed with your own wisdom. See, this is what we need to be growing in as individuals, as a church. Paul wrote, we'll close with this, have this mind in Philippians among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have given practicality to it, that we can take these things and go home and apply them directly to our lives. And Father, none of us have all these things in check. None of us has arrived in in these different uh, commands that we were looking at this morning. But Father, we pray that we would be filled with your spirit each and every day. We'd be filled with love and grace. And Lord, as we go out into this lost and dying world, that people would not look at us as a bunch of right-wing hypocrites that want to impose our worldview on everybody else, but they would look at a group of people who've been broken over their sin, who's willing to reach out and be compassionate and identify with the lowly. And Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we speak your truth to those around us each and every day. Father, that we would only say what you desire us to say, no more, no less, and that we'd be led by your Spirit to do so. I pray for each heart that's represented here in this room this morning, Lord. I don't know the condition of each heart. I don't know if every person in this room has cried out to you. But, Lord, you know the condition of our hearts. You know everything about us. You know us better than we know ourselves. And, Father, the one thing you know is that we're We're lost in our sins without Christ. So I pray if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that even this morning they'd be willing to cry out in the quietness of this moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. That's the first step of acknowledging Christ is the Savior. Your willingness to bow and kneel before him and just come before him in humbleness and broken heart over your sin. Understanding the only way to a holy God is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross. If that's your desire this morning, you can just pray that prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll answer that prayer when it comes from a sincere heart. So Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you'd bless our food and our fellowship over in the fellowship hall and uh, just bless the remainder of our day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.